Pastor Craig once, and I really appreciate the programs and the messages that he brings. So this is titled, This is My Story. Now, he set the tone last week and where it was kind of personal. And so I got the message. It's not just meant to be about what you've done. It's meant to be about your journey through what you've done and so on. And owing to my age, I'm on bonus time. The three score and ten have expired. <laughs> so I have a long story. And it's got lots of chapters in it. So what I'm going to do, we're just going to look at a couple of chapters in, in my story. And I'm going to be a little reflective because I got a lot of looking back and not so much looking forward. <laughs> you know, when you hit my age, that's is kind of how it is. <laughs> You've arrived, but you're not really. So what I would like to do is to explain my thinking and my approach to this Christian walk into ministry. And so you'll see on the next slide that I made kind of an amendment there. <clears throat> we tell a much better story together, and nobody's story is by themselves. Everybody's story is interwoven with other people's stories. And you know, so when I think about this is, so in one respect, I'm going to be a little retrospective going backwards. So last February, my wife and I celebrated 50 years of marriage. And of course, through the last 50 plus years, I didn't marry her the first day I saw her though I would have liked to have. <laughs> so over 50 years that we have woven our lives together, and it's been full of God's love and grace and faithfulness. In December of 2017, actually technically December the 31st of 2017, I retired after four months and 39 years of ministry at this church. And over those years, I had a lot of various pastoral duties and responsibilities, included right at the beginning when we first came here, teaching at PLBC and helping to run PLB, PBC, Pacific Bible College. And Graham was one of the students at that time. And that, and also directing missions and guiding and developing how the three societies use this property. It seems like a, a lot of different activities. And that, but let me first explain my approach to these kind of things. So we have another slide there. <clears throat> Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Now, I'm not a very mighty guy. Just quietly go about business. But what it means is it do it with sincerity. No matter what phase of your life you're in, you're not filling in time to reach something else. Each phase in your life, you are to do it the best way you can. 
And then also we have Corinthians. Give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We're not wasting our times setting aside our personal agendas and putting the kingdom of God first. And very interestingly, we like these two verses, and they both had a very special meaning to us, especially the Ecclesiastes verse to, to my personal life. When we first became Christians, and if we have enough time, I'll get into it, but somebody very forcefully spoke over to me as a brand new Christian and said, whatever your hand finds do, do it with all your might. And it kind of still is reverberating through my head. So you won't be hard for you to guess what kind of church we got saved into. And so that's always been something <clears throat> that I have kept up. The next slide is, so these, I've been asked a number of times, how did you get to be a pastor? Well, to be perfectly honest with you, I've really not figured it out. It was more of a day-by-day-by-day -day -day experience. And so, this is, has been my philosophy, that make yourself useful. Be useful. The next slide. Don't jam your life up with personal, self-indulgent agendas and get yourself into debt. Don't jam your life up. It's all very well to say, well, I'd really like to do this. I'd really like to go there. I'd really like to go on that trip to Uganda. I'd really like to go up north. I would really like to go and help night shift. But you, but you suddenly discover you have no room you have so many other obligations and things you must do. You just can't do it. And then as we go on, and the, the one we put up here, don't build fences around what you will and won't do. You are saying no to opportunity. Stats Canada, and I just read it this week, came out with a statistic about young people, teenagers, who in their 20s and 30s became very good employees. Now, I'm sure that like most of us, when we're teenagers, we want to be an accountant, a pilot, a doctor, a nurse, a mechanic. We have ideas of what we would like to be. Stats Canada pointed out that teenagers that took jobs flipping hamburgers, working in the coffee store, working at a, a nursery, working in all these places, were far more likely to become successful employees than people who had never worked. They learned how to get along with people. They learned how to be responsible. They learned how to get to work on time. They knew what it was like to be told, sorry, I don't need you anymore. <laughs> you know, and they learned through the life's lessons. And it's very, very important that we don't get so tunnel vision, I only can do this. I've got some other points here somewhere. The next slide. 
in every decade, you can do something better and things not as well. I know there's a friend of mine sitting in this room, and I remember about 15 years ago, he declared, I'm always going to be a youth pastor. But as time ticked by, he became more youthless. <laughs> and somehow the connect with that generation kind of dissolved. And you have to learn that your particular age and your, where you're at in life and so on enables you to do certain things and, and also means you can't do other things. The next slide. Life is a journey of transit points. On arrival, it's over. Life is full of transitions. Now, we know the obvious ones. First day of school, graduation, getting married, retiring. It's kind of a whole bunch of stuff in between, but a transition or a transit point it can be a death of a loved one, sickness, bankruptcy, all sorts of things come along. And what I'm going to point out, it's, first of all, we have to realize that all through life, there is change. Life is not stationary. And, and something that is very, very important, it's called, I call it mindset. How you think about these things has more to do with their impact or lack of impact on your life than the event itself. It's all to do with the mindset, and at every stage in our lives, we have to change how we think. And it took me about, up to right now, from December 2017 to now, to find a shift my mind about this retirement thing. The first little while, I felt like I was on vacation. You know that feeling you get when you're on vacation, and you go off somewhere, you know, and you have this temporary space. You know, it's a temporary space. Then the next thing I went through was I felt, always felt like I should have been somewhere else. And then it's okay now. <laughs> it's, I seem to hit some kind of normalness and that. So when we think about transit points and transitioning in life, life is almost like a journey where... Craig and Shanda, they, they got all these transit points that you're going to go visit somebody, you travel somewhere, and you fly here, and you catch a train, and you catch a bus. Just imagine that we actually stopped at one of those transit points. It would seem strange. This last month, actually this month, no, last month, I'm getting old, did school, the high school here did a graduation. I love coming to the grads. You see these kids all dressed up and they're enjoying themselves and they're singing and they're, they're celebrating and you, some of the kids, you knew them when they went to kindergarten and there they are in a beautiful suit and they're looking so mature. Now just imagine that one of those kids went, 
wow, this is the best year of my life. Wow. And came back in September and re-enrolled in grade 12. Now, we would think that to be ridiculous. But that's what some of us try to do. We try to stay exactly where we are. And we don't realize you can't go back. Life is tick, 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 tick. Okay, so let's talk about my journey at Bible Fellowship and Horizon. And so this is one of the chapters we're going to look at. In 1973, my wife and I moved over from Gibson's Landing to Sunshine Coast where we were youth pastors and joined the church here. Well, it wasn't right here. It was over there. We were on 104th near 160th. And there was a lot of stuff going on, a lot of change. Um, they were changing their name from Wally Revival Tabernacle to Bible Fellowship Missionary Society. They, they developed a new constitution. And, and actually were a very, very good constitution and bylaws. And right in the bylaws, it said, where most bylaws say this, we believe the Bible to be the full and plenary inspiration of God, and da-da-da-da-da-da. Our constitution says we believe the King James Bible to be the inspired Word of God. <laughs> we joined the eldership. They were building a building, and I think I cut every two-by-four and two-by-six on that building when I was looking for work, and my wife and I, for a number of years, ran an evening Bible college. In 1978, Bible Fellowship and Open Bible Chapel joined together. We had started Bible Fellowship Christian Academy that is now today Regent Christian Academy, and they had Pacific Bible College, it's today is now a Pacific Life Bible College, and they had to relocate, and the city would not let us build more buildings and develop the school, and so we came to use this facility. Now, that to me was a real transition because all the activity and demands, I came on staff and I worked with Marvin Hunt and that, and we <clears throat> ran the Bible college. Now, <clears throat> on a personal level, it was a major transition point. And sometimes you don't actually realize that you have walked into a transition point. Sometimes you bought a house or you changed jobs. And when you got there, you found it was very different to what you imagined. So all my life, I had been paid by the hour. I had worked for my father who had a farm and he gave me a mere pittance an hour. He paid my buddies about three or four times as much. <laughs> and that... And I had this thinking, and in my thinking it was like this. The more you work, the more you get. The more you work, the more you get. And because I had always worked in a, we'll say, a menial world, farming as a tradesman, building and all those kind of things, you had this very measured quantitative physical world that you lived in. 
And the last company I worked for, an engineering company, and I was a technician, we had a very creative accountant. Not as creative as J. Marvin Hunt, but he was pretty creative. And he had a little notebook. And every week or every two weeks, I got exactly the same amount of money. And then when I went on vacation or wanted to do something, he'd pull out his little notebook and he would pay me for the call-outs and the extra hours and all that kind of thing. So we were very excited, came on staff, and we were just using this facility. And there were, we didn't have very much money, which I will explain later. And there was a lot of work. There was a lot of work. And I'm getting, I got up on a Saturday morning, had my breakfast, and we must have been doing something that was pretty muddy or dirty. And I'm sitting on the steps of my house, and I'm doing up my bootlaces, and I suddenly realized, and this thought came through my head, it doesn't matter how much I work or how much I don't work, I'm not going to get any more pay. And I no longer had the ability to work overtime and do different things and pay for a vacation or fix the car or put tires on the car or whatever. It didn't matter how much I worked. I didn't get any more. And as I was sitting there adjusting to this shift in thinking and juggling my mind, this thought just floated through my head. And this thought and idea said to me, same deal. If you work for me, I'll take care of you. And all my ministry life, I have attempted to keep busy. And maybe there's different reasons for that. You have to justify yourself. You have to validate why you're doing things and why you are here and so on. But anyway... <clears throat> So that was, in my t personal experience, that was a major transition. And apart from coming on staff to work with Marvin and Arthur Eakin and the other people that we had to run the Bible College, in my almost 40 years here, I have never had a job description. I have never had, okay, would you do this? Would you do that? We're rearranging the staff. <clears throat> and Marvin can attest to that. You know, we were number twos. We were staff pastors. We had these visionary guys who proclaimed we were going to do this and that. And all these needs came up, and it was our responsibility to make them work. So you spend almost your entire ministry facilitating somebody else's idea. You know, and you, you have to, you do learn to put your agendas aside. You do learn that this is how you have to serve. Now, one of my responsibilities that came about exactly the same way was to, ended up giving a lot of leadership to missions. Now, the name of the church fully was Bible Fellowship Missionary Society. Missions was in our DNA. It was just something we did. I'm not sure everybody knew exactly what it was, but they knew generally what it was. And back in the early 80s, when we didn't have any funds, 
Bud McLean, who was a missionary evangelist, decided along with one of the other staff members to go out to Abbotsford and to do a church plant. And then I'm kind of looking from the sidelines and watching things, and I realize nobody is taking care of missions. And in those days, it was Gene Christensen in India and Ambrose Linder and Yahoo in Nigeria, where Brother Craig and, <clears throat> and Chandra are there right now, and so on. And we had a little bit of work in Mexico and so on. And so we started to to figure out a way to facilitate missions. And what we actually did is that we were very, we didn't have a lot of money. We no longer had a missions pastor on staff. So what we actually did is every penny that came in went to missions. And because we had an administrative facility here, admining the school, the church, and the college, we could admin missions. And over the years, it really developed, and we still have the board over there with all the different missions and different things that we were doing. And, and really what we did was, and it was in tune of what, of what I had been doing for years, you figured out how to facilitate somebody and help them do what God had called them to do. And the major part of this we did was the handling of funds. And when the church started to prosper a bit more, we were doing about $300,000 a year out of one congregation, which was phenomenal. And then other groups, a business and some other people came along, and they had burdens overseas. And for a number of years, we were doing over a million dollars a year coming through our offices, going to the mission field. And then one day there was a and Revenue Canada, Big Brother came along and said, you can't do that. Do what? Well, innocent. <laughs> and because of money laundering and because of drug money smuggling and so on, you are no longer allowed to, to send money to some overseas place that is not your activity. And so that... But anyway, we learned to get our way through that, and the government laid some rules down, and they're still working with us. But, you know, you just have to faithfully serve God. You have to faithfully move forward with good conscience and address what the Lord has put on your heart to do. And I have a little slogan that when I was going through this message that I pruned down a lot because I've lived a long time and worked a long time, and I think you do want to go home today. <laughs> I can't, I'm not going to do chapter two next week and make this <laughs> my own series. <laughs> but in my experience, I saw needs and I just did it. Just do it. And I do remember Charity Ambaria, who was our secretary and worked in the office for many years and from Kenya, she looked at me one day and she said to me, be sure that no good deed goes unpunished. <laughs> and what I discovered, and it's true, as soon as you do something, it's yours. From fixing the pump station to fixing the leaks on the roof to writing to missionaries, finding funding for this, for working things out, shipping containers overseas, teaching in the Bible college. As soon as you did something, it was yours. 
Now, the next little area that I want to go on with is, oh, I should do a little bit more about missions. Back when I got involved with missions, it was very, everybody knew that we supported missions, but it wasn't that specific. And I thought about it yesterday. Craig and Shanda are in Nigeria, and it reminded me of my first trip to Nigeria. Even though they're roughing it a little bit, I can tell you this, their trip is five-star compared to mine. <laughs> and back in the early 80s, there was a lot of activity and energy going on here. And out of some meetings and planning, we had Ray Barnett came as a guest speaker at a luncheon. We used to hold luncheons upstairs every second month. Was birthed the African Children's Choir. And... So this church and Glad Tidings in Vancouver and the churches out in the valley and I think a church in San Jose, we put some funds together and we helped to fund the first African children's choir that came to, to North America. And the, they raised money and they were doing things and then somebody realized that it wasn't enough just to bring them here. And it's a whole other story of why the children were bought but we needed to start something at the other end. So through some process, and I always felt I was the slowest guy around because I didn't avoid it, it was decided that Alex would go to Uganda and set up a children's home or do, and help to do that. So then, in those days, every church has how they officially work, and every church has kind of this dynamic that goes on and different influences and in people. So a very positive and influential group in the church in those days was the ladies of the church. <laughs> Brother Graham is... And you have to have a lot of humor. <laughs> they were called the Koinonia. So I would call them the Corny Club. Uh, which they decided to change their name to Lift. So I said, oh, well, ladies in a flap together. <laughs> but I loved those ladies, and they were, they were all about missions. They decided that Alex needed, on his way to Uganda, just to pop into Nigeria and visit Ambrose and Linda. Well, that's about the same as you going to Seattle and somebody said, would you just drop into New York? And I want to t tell you that that was a trip that I could write a book about. Well, firstly, Ambrose and Linda lived in a very rural area, no fax machines, no telephones. There was no way of getting a hold of them. The only way we communicated was by writing a letter, and for another letter to come back, you were looking at two to three months by the time you sent and so on. So Linda had been very ill, and the ladies of the church, and I can tell you this, and you can laugh about it, <clears throat> you can have the guys mad at you, but if the ladies of the church are on your side, you can do no wrong. And they had raised a lot of money for missions, they prayed for missions, they were enthusiastic, they were supportive, so we tried to figure out how I could go to Nigeria on the way. And somebody said one of these ridiculous statements, oh, there's a Nigerian living in New Westminster, 
and the old church manse there. Maybe you should talk to him. Well, it was the only option I had, so I phoned this gentleman and told him what I wanted to do, that I wanted to get to visit this couple in this remote area. The man laughed at me and said these words, one in 50 million Nigerians. I know those people. I have been there. It was just quite incredible. And I'm still friends with Paul today. And so he phoned Lagos to a church he knew. A man got on a bus, went up to where Ambrose Linda lived, and walked in on their Wednesday night prayer meeting and said, Pastor Alex is going to be here on Saturday. At the meantime, I flew to London and went to the Nigerian embassy. It takes two to three weeks to get a visa. I got a visa the next day. I got on a plane and landed in Port Harcourt, which is a second international airport there. And I thought they were very aggressive with me, and I had my very nice British passport, only to discover later that Mrs. Thatcher was the most unpopular person in Nigeria and that they had arrested an, an English accountant and thrown him in jail and they had arrested two aircraft mechanics who were British aircraft mechanics and said they were trying to steal a plane. But anyway, sometimes it's just very important to be naive. <laughs> So anyway, I clear customs, and I'm just at the last desk, and this guy in a very stern voice, and Nigerians can be very stern, who is meeting you? And I'm thinking, well, this guy not going to let me out. Well, he, in reflection, he was concerned with my well-being. And I looked over his shoulder, I looked at him, and I saw Ambrose pressed against the glass, and I said, him. So anyway, we bounced along at Ambrose's little bug. We went to the church. I did a whole series of youth meetings. You know, youth today are worried about the future. You're a youth in a village in Nigeria in 1980. You ain't got no future. And so we're able to really minister them and to encourage them. And I had a fantastic time. They put me on a, a local plane, and I f flew down to Lagos. And one of Job's comforters before I left on the trip said to me, oh, you're going to get in a taxi. They're going to take you up a back alley, rob you, and beat you up. <laughs> so I've got this in the back of my mind. There I am, landing in this domestic airport. There's a line of taxis, 20 long. There's only one white guy there. And this guy jumped the queue and somehow... I got into his taxis, and they were all beating on the roof of the taxi because he had cheated. And I said, international terminal, please. The guy drove, the guy drove, the guy drove and drove and drove and drove further and further away from the airport. And I wasn't perspiring because of the heat. <laughs> and suddenly he pulls up at this place that says international hotel. Ah, international airport. So he drives me to the airport, wants to charge me double, and in my self-righteous white colonial thing, I refused to pay him double because it was his mistake. <laughs> so he drops me off half a mile from the airport. So there. 
So there I am with my overloaded suitcases that I didn't really need both of them, walking to the airport. I get into the airport. It is quiet. There's nothing going on. And I'm thinking, oh? And in the middle of the airport was a blackboard, like one of those ones you wheel out. And I could vaguely see there had been a whole lot of writing on this board in chalk. And it had all been erased. Then right up in the top corner, this is how old I am, I see Pan Am flight, and it's all rubbed out. I suddenly had this feeling that kind of swept through me. Buddy, your flight was yesterday. And I was to fly to, to Uganda, fly to, not to, to um, Nairobi. Somebody was to meet me and stick me on a flight to Uganda that was in the middle of civil war. So <clears throat> I paid $100 under the table. I had a good ticket and got endorsed over to this other airline and I flew to Nairobi. And I was told the plane is full and we can get you on, you know, da 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 da. Well, there was two empty seats. I don't know if I was had, but I was, it was cheap to get out of there. <laughs> so anyway, I land in Nairobi. Um, just move along here. I'm a day late. There's some miscommunications, and they didn't want me to fly into Entebbe unless somebody was there to meet me. We, we miscommunicated, and I didn't fly that day, only to discover, because of the war and stuff going on, there was only three flights a week. And I was going to have to stay in Nairobi from Sunday to the following Wednesday evening. I didn't want to do that. So a pastor said to me, a local pastor, oh, you can get on the bus. The bus goes from Nairobi to Kampala. Great. So I hop on this bus. It was the Milk Run bus. It left at 9 o'clock at night. It stopped at every village that existed in Nairobi, in Kenya. And at 4 o'clock in the morning, it arrived at the border town of Busia, there were just lineups of semis and trucks and everything. And then they announced, this is it, we're going no further. And dumped everybody out at five o'clock in the morning. So there I was again with my two suitcases. Changed a hundred dollars behind a coffee truck and the guy says, well, they've arrested a whole bunch of us and so the rate's kind of low right now. So I changed, <coughs> changed, got some Ugandan money and I literally walked into Uganda. There was just a, one like the gate out here, just a gate across there and a sleepy guard, because they didn't, it was not a 24-hour crossing. Guy stares at me. I hand him my passport, and it was that nice British passport. And you used to have occupation. It says minister. I figured out after a little bit, he thought I was a British diplomat walking into Uganda and thought that I was a total nut. So he just let me in, no stamp, no nothing. <laughs> so a little way away there, and these are all over Africa. We have Africans here. There was a marketplace. So I walked to this marketplace, and then these vehicles start pulling up, and the drivers stand on top of the vehicles and start yelling where they are going. And I hear Kampala. So there was a a blue Peugeot station wagon. Peugeot's conquered Africa, I can tell you. They are great vehicles. So I get into this Peugeot with three or four university students who are going home for Easter, and I became the white passport. And every time we stopped at a, at a, at a um, 
where the soldiers were and so on. They looked in the window and said, oh, it's a journalist. And they just waved us through. We went through, <coughs> we went through places with, armed with regular soldiers, armed with guerrillas, and we eventually got into, into Kampala. And it was in the middle of the afternoon, and it had cost me all of $10 to get from the border into Kampala. Where was I going to go? And I suddenly remembered I had seen a slide that Ray Barnett had put up of the McCary Full Gospel Church, which is a glad tidings church, and I knew it was near the university. So it cost me another $10 to get from the taxi park in Kampala up to the university. And I said to the guy, keep driving. So he kept driving, driving and we came around a corner and there was the church. So I said, in there. So he went in there, and there standing in the yard was Lou Peterson, who was a Canadian missionary that I know. And so that was my first trip to Africa. So I assure you that Craig and Shanda have gone five-star. <laughs> I guess the stars and stars, isn't there? And I'm very excited that they are there today and that, <clears throat> that they have reconnected. With, with, our, with our missionaries and so on. The, the next little chapter that I want to do here is, is something that did have a major impact on my life, was my leadership and administration connecting with this property. And, you know, <clears throat> properties are very valuable because in our mode of ministry, we need space to do what we do, and space is very expensive. I think that maybe one day we might have virtual space. We'll stay home, put a headset on, and we'll virtually be in a worship service. We'll virtually be in a classroom. But right now, we need space. And my whole approach to, to administrating this facility was to create a healthy codependence between the school, the college, and the church. Together we have much more, and so on. And God has really blessed us here. So back in the early 80s, when Pacific Bible College, RCA, and the church were here, man, we had momentum. We had energy. Stuff was really moving. And I did learn something about momentum. Momentum... It's like a big rock rolling down a hill. You can nudge it this way, you can nudge it that way, but if you get in the way, you're going to get run over. And things were really flying. And so things were really going along great. And then, I think in 1984, we had a, something called a recession. We had purchased this property and for a large sum of money, the bank allowed us to put our name on the title, and so on. And suddenly, the bottom dropped out of everything. The $1.8 million mortgage on this property became a huge millstone around our neck. People didn't really want to attend a church that was broke. Through J. Marvin and his budgeting, and through many things, we managed to hold on to this property. The senior bank managers came and visited us, trying to make a decision whether they were going to foreclose on us or not. 
And because they saw the place was busy, there was no new Mercedes out there, it wasn't fancy. And because the relationship that Marvin had developed with the bank manager, they decided to hang in with us. And it, you know, financial pressures, I think, are one of the toughest pressures that you can ever go through. We went through a period, and I can remember walking around telling the school teachers we couldn't pay them that month. And it took us a long time to dig ourselves out from under this financial crisis. For a period of six months, I can remember that Marvin and myself, and I can't remember whoever, we received no pay. You know, <clears throat> but God is faithful. But that's only part of the story. At the same time, in all that excitement and activity and everything is growth, 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 a number of us decide to build our own houses. We bought lots and we built houses. Now, there's a few people getting a little worried about the real estate market and the economy right now. They, they're worried and upset that the house dropped by 5% or maybe even a dreadful 10% that interest rates might go up half a percent or 1%. Hey, try your house going from $180,000 to $90,000, a 50% drop. Try 6% interest going up to 18.5% and peaking at 21. That's something to sweat about. So we had a house. It was worth $90,000. We finished the house and sold it and gave the money to the bank. We gave our other house to the bank and we walked away with nothing. And... <clears throat> I can tell you that I did learn during those days, and I can remember for over a year, I had a knot in my stomach. I would go to bed at night stressed out, and I would wake up stressed out. And through that, Sue and I decided that our kids weren't going to suffer. And we, you know, I did learn through all that kind of thing, it's 90% of it is your mindset. 90% of the impact is not that it's not real. And so we had no other debt beside the bank, and the bank wants to get rid of you. They don't want debts. They want you gone. And so we didn't go cashless. We didn't have much money. We went cash. And you just you find yourselves in the hands of the devourer. And I can remember... The bank, saying to the bank, well, if you foreclose on me, I'll stop paying. We were paying what we could. So the bank went pooey on you, and they foreclosed. And I don't know if the same rule is today, but you can stay in a house for a year if the bank forecloses. So we stayed in the house for a year, which enabled us not to need as much money, and we were able, in some ways, it was a silver lining in, in a black cloud. So it, I was able to muddle through and not receive any wages from here because we weren't making a payment. So there was always somebody in the church that had a camper, had a trailer, had something. And so I remember going on vacation. And of course, this loss of everything, I'm thinking it's wrecked my credit rating and we paid cash for everything and you were so careful about what you did and what you spent and so on. And I can tell you that financial pressures, I've already said, that's tough. 
So we were down the state somewhere, and I pulled into this big gas station where you had to prepay. So I went in, and I gave a cre my credit card that I hadn't used for two years to the cashier, and I says, don't run the card. I'll, I'll pay whatever I put in. So they did a shift change. I walked back in, and the cashier says, now the cashier, the credit card company, wants to talk to you. Stuck the phone in my ear, and this person said, are you Mr. Palmer? Yes, I'm Mr. Palmer. I'm Mr. Palmer, whatever. <laughs> we just want to know why you're not using your credit card. So our, <clears throat> our credit rating was fine. <laughs> and that, so the Lord has been very faithful, and as we're running out of time, and I wasn't going to in, include it, I can tell you that that impression that I got from the Holy Spirit, same deal, you work for me, I will look after you. Today, we have our own house. We do not have... We do not have any debt, and I drive the nicest car I've ever owned in my life. Well, actually, my wife drives it mostly. <laughs> Because I drive my little Honda. She can't drive a stick shift. <laughs> but anyway, God is faithful. And, and my, my challenge to you today is this. <clears throat> is that there is a call to service. And it is almost as simple as a shift in how you think. In the kingdom of God, there are no spectators. <clears throat> Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is about setting your personal agenda aside. Just change how you think. I can attest that you do not labor in vain. You are not wasting your time. The Lord knows you have needs. Just think about it, and I actually was reading this scripture last night. When Jesus said to the disciples, come follow me, they literally up and left everything. Today, the Lord is saying to us, go. Go to where you always go, but take the message of the kingdom of God. It's about ordinary people going into ordinary places with a message. God is not going to lay some great burden on your shoulders because he said, my yoke is light. My burden is easy. And so to me, I want to challenge you in the area of putting his agenda first. If you are new to church, you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, and you had no idea that the God that created the heavens and the earth actually has a personal agenda for you. You had no idea that you could be useful. I want to challenge you. And for the rest of us, I want to challenge you to do an agenda shift. Life causes us to drift. 
In the Psalms somewhere, it says, turn me again, O Lord. And what it's talking about is drifting and a lack of focus and asking the Lord to bring you back on focus. So would you pray with me now? Precious Lord, I pray for all those today who don't know you in a personal way. The idea that you have an agenda for them, that you have a purpose for them, no matter how simple, no matter how complicated, Lord, I ask you to move upon their hearts. And as I pray, if, you, if you're one of those people that, that this has kind of been an awakening, Lord, would you just raise your hand so I can pray for you? Lord, speak specifically to these people, Lord. Jesus, that you would reveal yourself to them, Lord, that you would help them to walk the way that you would have them walk. And for the rest of us, Lord, who have drifted, who have got caught up in our own agendas, our own plans, Lord, help us to get back on course. Precious Lord, we thank you that you are ever patient, you are ever faithful, that you are the faithful master. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.